Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. You know that Sarah Bareilles song called Brave? Uh, I think so, yeah. I love me that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it makes me think of you. Really? Yes. Mm. You're very brave. I don't think I'm very brave. We're going to talk about that. Oh. But first, let's do a listener question. So it's just going to be you and I arguing about how oh, I'm not brave and you're going to tell me I'm brave and I'm going to say no, I'm not? I doubt that you'll like great. Yeah. That sounds like a great <laughs> podcast. Entertainment coming your way, people. <laughs> no, I doubt you'll argue with me when you hear the context. Context. Text. Would you like to hear the listener question? Absolutely. We've been getting some great listener questions lately. If you've got one for us, listener, hey, listener, email us at matt at soberandunashamed.com, and we would love to work your listener question into an upcoming podcast. This one is a follow-up from the two Catherine episodes, the episodes with our daughter, Episode 200, where Catherine told her story, and you and I tried to stay out of that as much as possible and make space for her. And then episode 201, where you and I react reacted to what we heard. And then we did the Echoes Retreat Live podcast episode. And so we're not going to go back and spend an entire episode further breaking down the Catherine episode. But I do want to arrest, address this listener question because I think that's fair. Catherine said what she wanted to say and what we wanted her, desperately wanted her to say. Then we reacted to it. And now we're getting, we've gotten a lot of reaction from listeners, really. But this is a question form reaction from a listener. And so we're letting the audience partake and participate in the conversation around Catherine and, and basically just being the child of in an alcoholic household. So the question You don't mention the other three kids in the family. Why? Do you feel they were too young to be impacted? Hmm. What's your answer to that, Sherry? Well, I don't feel like they were too young to be impacted. We want this to be our oldest child's story. And that's why I felt like we just kind of mentioned that. She did mention her brothers and her protection, and this was her perspective, Mm -hmm. her story, her take on it. Maybe one day the others will want to join or they'll have comments they want us to share. Um, I think they were all impacted in ways that we are not even aware of now. Things are unfolding. Not even fully aware of. Fully aware. Things are unfolding that I think can be traced back to alcoholism. I think I have um, some traits that, um, you know, I was impacted by my father's alcoholism even though I didn't live, he didn't live in our house. Um, My parents divorced when I was two. But I still did visit him every other weekend. I saw him. There were arguments, you know, intense times between he and my mom. So I think there was a lot that just happens from your childhood, regardless of alcohol that you bring into it. But then when you have alcohol or another type of addiction, it really impacts the kids. And I think to to an early point where Matt said, Oh, in, the, in his sobriety, I don't think the kids are really impacted. And I was like, you have no idea. And I don't either. And it's going to be years before we'll know. And they, yes, you're wrong. They were impacted. 
I was wrong. They were impacted. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, I completely validate and support everything you said. I think it's important to understand what we have learned, which is that we have four kids and all four of them were impacted in very different ways. So yes, this was Catherine's turn. She was the, she is the oldest. She went first. For one thing, she's uh, you know a full-grown adult, and I think that's important because I don't think we want to record minors and and what they have to say because then when they're adults, that lives out there and mm-hmm. and they don't you know necessarily have control over what they said when they were in their young teen years. So I think it's important that she was a full-grown adult before we recorded and published for the outside world to hear. Right, and we had, like, this was on her, her own terms. Yeah. She wanted to do this. Yeah. We didn't, you know, we didn't push and go. We did ask her earlier, would you ever want to, like, a year or so ago, and she was like, no. Yeah, that's right. You know, so I just said there's a lot of... When she had just turned 18, we asked her. Yeah, and I think that that, I think because she needed to get to a place where she felt comfortable sharing her story. But I think it's important that we understand that even though she's the only one that has spoken so far, she doesn't speak for the other kids. She spoke about her perspective on what the other, the boys went through to a very small degree on that episode. But her experience is different than theirs. You know, she's the oldest and that, as the oldest myself, you know, my I have a younger sister, that carries a different kind of level of weight yeah it she's um you know gender wise we have different genders in our family and so i think there is that has an impact on what your experience is and humans are individuals so she you know has characteristics and traits that are different than those of her brothers and so how my drinking impacted her is naturally going to be different so yes she went first we're respecting her story and keeping it as its own thing. But don't make any mistake. If you're the parent of three kids, for instance, don't go, oh, you know, whatever my oldest says, that's how they've all been impacted. That is not the case. I don't, I mean, certainly not in our experience. Right. The other kids have very different experiences. Like not, I'm, not necessarily better. I'm not saying, oh, Catherine's right. the only one that had a bad time. Not That's no. not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, like our youngest experience is a lot of like frustration, anger, anxiety, um, some things like that that I could see early on in his formative years, yeah. even as a like a young toddler, like and this um, that I think comes from living in that very tense and stressful environment. Yeah, absolutely. This was a two-part listener question. Part two is clearly there is work needed on your relationship with Catherine. Will you share your progress? And I think the answer is just a resounding yes. I don't think we can say a lot beyond that. I don't think we know. I mean, you and I are very hopeful that our already good relationship with our daughter will continue to strengthen mm-hmm. and that we will ride off into the sunset having, you know, reconciled fully and, and that we've got a great, you know, adult relationship with our adult, all of our adult kids. And we're going to work like hell to make that happen and we'll talk about it because that's what we do. But I don't think. You know, we're in a position to say anything other than, yeah, we'll share we'll share the progress. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. 
The the only other thing I'll say on that is I do want to remind our listeners that we are starting this new program that Catherine is leading for us called the Deve- the Developing Story, and it is a writing group for teens. Still, lots of things to work out, but we do have some people that have expressed interest through our little enrollment website, and we're reaching out to those folks and trying to figure out exactly what they're looking for, what ways we can support. Again, Catherine is going to lead this group because she's 21 and you and I are in our 50s, and I don't think a bunch of teens want to talk to you and I. Yeah. And Catherine has experiences that will be closer to theirs. Exactly. And it's, it's intended for teens that have experienced alcoholism in their home or heavy drinking. You know, we don't have to worry about the label, but heavy drinking in their home. And so if you're interested, please check out what we've got going on at thedevelopingstory.org. And if you enroll at the bottom, you aren't making any big commitments. You're just saying, hey, I'm raising my hand. I'm interested. What more can I learn? And we'll get back with you and uh, move down that path of communication together. Bravery, Sherry, for the spouse of an alcoholic is counterintuitive. Asking for help can be the most brave thing. Often, incorrectly, sadly, in our society, asking for help is linked to weakness. I can't do it on my own. But I know in our experience, there's nothing more brave that you've ever done in your life than ask for help when I was in active addiction. There's lots of universalisms, what we call universalisms, when it comes to the progression of alcoholism. The progression is very predictable. But among the sameness, from case study to case study, there are nuanced differences. Like, for instance, I mostly communicated my drinking intentions. And when I say mostly, I mean... Maybe 100%. Maybe you can correct me. But I, you know, when I was in a period of sobriety, you knew I was in a period of sobriety because I told you that. When I, at the end of my period of sobriety, had decided for whatever of a variety of reasons that I was going to drink again, that I could handle it, that I had made this big choice that I was going to drink again, I always told you, didn't I? I mean, there was never a time when I snuck that. Um... And if you didn't verbally tell me, it would have been blatantly obvious when you were surrounded by people and you had a beer in your hand. Yeah. There were a couple times where you couldn't handle the sobriety and had to, at at a social engagement, had to start drinking, you know, after arriving there. But that was just, you know, I think maybe once or twice. But think, the point is I never sneak, but you, sneak drink. But you never hid your drinking from me because... You felt there was nothing to hide. Yeah. You wanted me to think it was all normal. Yeah. So I never lied about the yes or no question of drinking or not drinking. I hid the amount. I hid the amount for myself, for heaven's sake. I mean, we had a kegerator for a couple of years, and I thought that was glorious for a number of reasons. Fewer trips to the liquor store being one of them, and it was cost-effective. But another reason was you couldn't count the beers, but... Really, neither could I. I'd lose track of how many, you know, I'd walk by it with half a beer and I'd top it off. And 
it's not like I sat there and calculated how many half beers or quarter beers or three quarter beers I drank. Mm-hmm. I drank a lot. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not trying to claim, you know, innocence here, but I. So I often hid the amount I was drinking from you and really from me, but I never hid the yes or no question. Now, let me assure you, Sherry, and our listeners. This is not a podcast episode about my innocence and how great I am because I was honest. This is an episode about um, really the the very worst side of me, I think, ever, if we think about it. Um, so I never hid the amount I drank. I never cheated on you. I, I was never unfaithful. I never forgot the kids. I never, like, you know, oh, I was supposed to pick them up after soccer practice or after school or whatever, and I just sat on a bar stool and blew off my responsibility. I never did that. Mm-hmm. I drove when I should not have, and I drove with the kids in the car when I should not have, for sure. So that's worse. I mean, it would have been better if I had just forgotten them. But I never did that. I never had any legal or financial ruin. And, you know, we, we hear stories What from a recent podcast with Amber Hollingsworth, what she would call more like an end-stage alcoholism situation where... The drinker has stopped working or has stopped bathing, you know, stopped self-care. I, I never, I never, I, I never got there. It was only a matter of time. I never got there because I stopped before I got there. I'm not better than people yeah. who get there. I just hadn't gotten there yet. So these are all the, the good things, right? That I never cheated on you and I never got the kids and I never stopped bathing. But... I was a relentless tyrant. I mean, a relentless tyrant in other ways. Um, I I grew up in a traditional patriarchal home. You know, there's no questioning whether or not my dad was the boss. And this is important because we see family patterns repeated. I mentioned cheating. I mean, there's been research done. I can't cite the research right now. But in a home where the father cheats on the mother, the sons are more likely to cheat on their spouses eventually. If if something is justified, whether it's justifiable or not, that doesn't matter. But if something is, is you know, seen as acceptable, then it's much easier for that to carry down through the generations. Like the Kennedy family? Yeah, I mean, sure. There's, yeah, Joe Kennedy cheated just, on his wife all the time. They had all these kids, and almost all the husbands cheated on their wives. Yeah. Like Jack well, that's an iconic on, family. Yeah. Less. So I'm just saying that's yeah. iconic, but yeah, that that's the kind of the thing what you're saying. Like It is. It was, an unknown, it was spoken and unknown, but somehow always they were able to figure it out and that it was known. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know... You had to Literally be- hundreds of examples of that, of known celebrity status kind of people yeah. where we could talk about that. You know, this person in this person's family, their parents got divorced. You know, the mother got divorced four times. So then the daughter gets divorced a bunch of times. Like, it's just a thing. That's this generational trauma that we talk so much about. And it's that's important for us to understand those family patterns. And it's important to understand that my dad was the boss because... Um, you know, that, that is, I, I on the, I on the surface would say, and, and mean, frankly, and still, you know, and always have, and always will. 
and believe that you and I were equals. And to say to the kids, you know, hey, what your mom says goes. And, you know, she deserves and must get the same amount of respect that you would ever show to me. And my dad did the same thing. I mean, my dad didn't tolerate when we as kids didn't respect my mom. But we also heard things like, wait till your dad gets home. So wait till your dad gets home means the, you know, the hammer's coming down when your father gets home because the big boss man's going to be home. And I internalize messages like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so, um, you know, that seeps into my subconscious. I internalize that. And as much as I truly wanted equality with you and I wanted us to have this even family where we would talk about things and negotiate things and come together and make these mutual decisions that would be beautiful and life-affirming and the family would be wonderful. As a drinker, I was incapable. Um, So I would, you know, drop the hammer and lay down the law and whatever other (laughs) cliches you want to come up with. I was a relentless tyrant. Um, Even though I never said... Wait till your dad gets home. You never did? No. Okay. I didn't. Because I was raised by a single mother. Yeah. And so... Excellent example. So it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I felt like... And I felt like you wouldn't have wanted me to necessarily say, wait till your dad gets home because you didn't want to be put in that bad guy position. Now, oftentimes, when you're talking about this, I and you're saying you wanted us to be equal and you would... The hammer would come out. Like, it'd be like when I would be in the middle of disciplining a child, and then you would step in. Yeah. Like, like my way wasn't going to be good enough. Yeah. And you wanted to come in and be the backup. It was like, bad cop, bad cop. You know? Yeah. Even though the kids kind of saw me as good cop, and like, they would tell me things, and they'd be like, don't tell dad this, or, you know, you know, I did this, or whatever, and I got a lot of don't tell dad, don't tell dad from the kids growing up. Yeah. But it wasn't like I ever like bowed to that sort of patriarchal, oh, your dad's going to, wait till your dad gets home and I tell him about it. Right. I mean, I didn't do that. But here, you're right. I would, I would say I will share with your dad this yeah. situation. Here's where this relentless tyrant thing comes out, comes into play. When I decided that my over-drinking... And our relationship problems were private, and I didn't want anyone to know about any of that. I mean, it was the law. Like, I would have absolutely come unglued Mm -hmm. and screamed the shingles off of this house, you know, if I found out that you were talking to anyone about our, our, um, our problems. So, you know, that means no talking to friends for you. Uh, no talking to family, no therapy. I mean, as much as, and I think people hear us on the podcast talk about the the value of therapy, and we have had probably a dozen, you know, licensed counselors on as guests that we've interviewed over the over the years. So you and I are big therapy fran- fans. But back then, when I was drinking, no therapy for you. I mean, I just didn't want anyone to know what our problems were and right down to the point where you were even afraid to search the internet for just online support because you were afraid I'd go through your internet history 
and see what you had, you know, what you'd been looking for. Do you, I mean, you've acknowledged that before, right? Yeah. Because I didn't know how to clear my history all the time. Or I was afraid I would leave something up. But I even, like, would go to a different library after I found out about a book or looked through. I wouldn't, wouldn't go to the library that was in our neighborhood. I didn't want the librarians that were there that knew our family to know that I was checking out books on alcoholism or marriage issues and things and like that. And how often did I go to that library? Uh, hardly ever. Yeah, I mean... Maybe I think... to pick up the kids after they had, like, a library, you know, special event there or something, or to take them there to drop off and pick up some more books, but hardly ever. That's the point, right? The precautions that you had to take, or that you chose to take, I would say you had to take, were so severe, were so... You know, you were so careful... I never went to that library. I never went to the library. I didn't know the librarians. I mean, I guess I knew the one. But I never went there. But yet you were so cautious because of what a tyrant I was. Right. And I knew that people knew us because of the the business we owned. So I knew that people knew that worked there. That's why I was afraid. Like, just what they would think going in to shop there. Because they knew the association. They may have not have been able to pick you out in a lineup, but they knew that we owned it, and I was afraid that it was going to tarnish the the business relationship that we had with them, too. Yeah. So the consequences, had I found out through the librarian or someone you had seen at the library that you were researching alcoholism, or had I found out that you talked to some of our family members or some of our friends, or had I found out that you were doing, you know, that dastardly deed of internet searches had I found out any of that back when I was a drinker I mean you would have faced relentless degrading just venomous anger I mean it would have been awful yeah I I don't want to understate this I we we joke now about how much I talk and how comfortable I am talking well the same was true back then it just you know, could be exceedingly negative and for a very long time. Like, I'm not one of these people that would have spoke my piece and then gone off and given you the silent treatment, which is a whole nother traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not downplaying how bad the silent treatment can be, but that just isn't our experience. Our experience is I would have made your life hell. Yeah, you would have lost your mind for several hours. And then drank during that whole time. And then maybe had a little quiet time where you could just sit and brood on it and come up with whatever else you were going to throw at me. And then come at me all night long. Not having any peace, just follow me around. Yeah. And probably for days. Depending on what it was you had done. Depending on if I... Apologize. Depending on what... Well enough. What... Yeah. Depending on what way you had sought help for yourself. I mean, I I can't emphasize enough how... How... Ugh, just awful a human I was. In that, you know, all you would be doing is seeking help to get through a challenging situation and I would have come unglued. You wouldn't... You weren't going out and cheating on me. You weren't calling a divorce lawyer... You're looking for support. And you, 
and you couldn't do that. You couldn't look for support because of the reaction you would have gotten. I mean, I could have. Like, there was a moment in time when I thought, whoa, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to have a couple of days of being told that I'm trying to ruin the marriage and oh, yeah. being All that unfaithful oh, to yeah. you by letting people in and letting our secret out. And, and then maybe it'd be like, I would think, well, that's the worst that's going to happen, but how much worse is it going to get without me... Trying to figure something out. Yeah. So that's what I did the first time I brought up bringing up therapy to you. Um, you know, and I knew that you were, you're very good about like combing through the insurance bills and making sure we're not getting charged for things that were unnecessary. And so I had to talk to you about going on anti-anxiety medicine and if I, I recall that was a nightmare conversation. Yeah, that and then I said the doctor, my GP wants me to go to therapy if I'm going to be on it, but you see how like crazy I get before we travel and I kind of had to play it up like it wasn't so much about your drinking that it was just I must be going through a hormonal change and all this other bullshit that I got basically told by the my GP. Yeah. That these are things that can cause anxiety. But that was, yeah, that was like three days of just terrible, you know, conversations. And, and finally relented and and I was able to get an appointment and go. I mean, it was and, ridiculous. And I was able to. I think that's, that choice of words is important. It, you know, you, you have free will. You are an adult individual. But the consequences are such that it makes it so that you don't have free will. Yes, you could at any time take your insurance card and you could go and you could make appointments and you could fill prescriptions. You could do all that. No, you know, nobody is shackling you into the wall in the basement. But the price you would have to pay to do that was just the same. Was, it felt like ugh, that. Maybe worse. Maybe worse. Maybe being shackled in the basement isn't as bad as just yeah. a relentless tyrant coming after you. The, we, the podcast episode released right before this one, episode 202, is live with an episode that we recorded live from our Echoes of Recovery retreat this summer. And there were... <laughs> Uh, a dozen of us in that recording, roughly. I can't remember the exact number now. Eleven. But eleven. Eleven of us in that recording. And there were, you know, if you think of how alcohol impacts people, if you think of it on a continuum or on a spectrum, we had people that spoke so eloquently and so powerfully on that podcast episode, and they were just so strong talking about what they... Uh, will and will not tolerate from their drinking spouse, how they are open with their story, how they have navigated the hell that they've gone through with alcoholism. And the message that they deliver is was really, really, really powerful. And then there were other people in that room and on that recording who you and I know the intimate details of their story and it's a lot closer to your story in that 
they could not speak that way. They could not be forceful. They could not be forthright. They could not just call up the neighbor and say, you know what? It's part of my story too. I'm going to tell the neighbor what's going on. They just couldn't. They couldn't. Because the wrath that they would face, and I'm not even talking about physical abuse. Abuse, you know, it doesn't have to be physical for it to be abuse. Mm -hmm. The wrath that they would take would be like the wrath that you would take. And I think this is a really important message because I know there are people in the listening audience who hear those powerful women talking about how, listen, I don't take shit and it's my story too and I'm telling it and I'm getting all the help I need. And they say, oh my God, I could never do that. And they don't mean I could never do that because they individually aren't strong enough. They couldn't build up the, the, uh, you know, the chutzpah or whatever to do it. They couldn't do it because of the consequences. And the circumstances. Consequences and circumstances. I mean, I was, you know, we had a, at a lot of the, you know, your alcoholism stage, we had a bakery together, a business. We owned our own business. It was a franchise of a business. Like, you know, it was just such a scenario that, like, breaking that up and financially, we were, you know, we were... I wasn't earning, like, really my own money. You weren't really earning your own money. We were just earning, like, what was left over at the end of the month from the bakery <laughs> bills and employment paying. And we are just bringing the stale bread home and <laughs> yeah, I mean, eating that. It wasn't, it wasn't a glamorous situation. So, And then I think about the three or four kids that we had that were during the worst times of your alcoholism. Like, and we didn't have family around. We don't have anybody around. We just had friends. But... I would say not even really close friends because of the hiding. You know, like there was no truth in my friendships that I could have like just showed up on somebody's door with three or four kids. You know, I'm sure that when we talked about asking for help in our group session on Wednesday this past week, like, it is very brave to ask for help, and people do want to help. Yeah. But I wouldn't have inflicted that kind of hell on one and someone I knew from my ladies' Bible study group if you found out where we were. I wouldn't want you to... I, I would be so mortified to have you show up at their house if I was there with the kids or whatever that would unfold. I don't know what would happen. So... The, the scenario was not set up where I could really take a lot of those chances. I think that if it was a situation now as the kids are older and some of them are out of the house, that I could have probably mustered a lot more, you know, independence. And I wouldn't have been so scared financially. But you're talking about the... You know, the ultimate decision, the should I stay or should I go decision. Like, you've had enough and you're going you're gonna to seek help to get out of the relationship. But also even just to say, this is my story yeah, and that's... I need help and I need to go get help. And I don't care if you, Matt, comb over that medical bill and you see that I am seeing a counselor and I am taking anti-anxiety drugs. Maybe if the situation where the kids were older where I didn't feel so shackled to you and I could have, like, you know, gained a little bit more perspective or the kids were older and I wouldn't have felt so attached to you. 
with yeah. their ages being young and having four that were all together. It but, just made me felt so... But again, that would be a risk you'd be willing to take as the kids are older. Because if I said, you yeah. know, let's burn it down, it's over, you feel in a better position to withstand that. I'm talking about the people who haven't decided that they are willing to take the risk on ending the relationship. They just want a little bit of help. Yeah. They just want to learn more about the disease of alcoholism. They want one human being that they can talk to. Right. There are people that are in situations similar to yours where they just can't. They can't risk that. Exactly. Because, you know, all hell is going to break loose if they do. And I, I just want those people to feel supported and at least understood, right? At least understood and heard because you do hear strong voices come on our podcast and say who are well into their recovery and they made a ton of progress. Maybe their spouse is sober and has been for some number of months or, or even years in some cases and they're on the road to recovery and they say really brave things that are admirable and esteemable and if you're in the bottom of the pit and you are married to a tyrant like me, you're thinking, oh my God, that is 10 million miles from where I am. I could never get there. And so I think the message, the overall message is, you know, don't give up hope. You, You can get there, but we are not underestimating how hard it would be. If you're married to someone like me, this is not a matter of you just growing a set and uh, deciding to, you know, take control of your own life. It's, it's, it's not that simple. Yeah. I mean, I think about our recovery groups. Like I could never have joined anything like Echoes back in that day. I would have never even considered it. In fact, I would have never even researched it. So I know how that feels. Yeah. There would have never been a possibility for me to say, hey, there's this spousal support group. Even if you had said, my drinking is affecting us and I need to get it under control. I need to take care of it. Even in your bouts of sobriety, there was no letting other people in. No. Well, let's talk about that. I want to talk about some of the really, really, in the context of, I don't know that it would be possible to be married without physical abuse. I don't know it would be possible to marry be married to a more tyrannical person than you were married to in me. Because once I started drinking, then the name calling would start too. So not only was I demanding and controlling, but then if I was drunk, I would also be hideously demeaning. So I'm not sure it's possible to be, like I said, short of physical abuse, married to anyone as awful as me. So in that context, you called my parents twice. Talk about what that was like to get to the point where even though you knew, you know, the world was going to come down on you, you still reached out and said, I need this help, so I'm going to do it. Were you just that mad that you didn't care anymore or that lost and hopeless? I don't think it was being mad that I didn't care anymore. It just, I was so hopeless. I didn't have any clue what to do. And it's not like they could have gotten here in an hour. They were in South Carolina. Yeah. And we're in Colorado. So, I mean, I don't know what happened. I just thought maybe it would snap your ass into some sort of wake-up reality moment when you're 
mother and father were on the phone with you at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, just to say, oh my god, she's serious now. But then, you know, it was so obviously I didn't think about it. I didn't, I just thought, I, it's either call them or call the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, and knowing how I did react, at least the first time you called my parents, I worked like hell to convince my parents that you were crazy and that they should have pity on me because they don't understand what it's like to be married to a crazy person like you. I didn't do it to be mean to you. I did it as a self-defense mechanism. I did it to preserve my reputation with my parents and to, and to keep alcohol in my life. Right. And actually, you know, to, to be completely honest, keeping alcohol in my life at that moment wasn't, like, that wasn't something I was thinking about. I was thinking about preserving my reputation with my parents. Yeah, you were thinking about I didn't want them to come here. I didn't want them to get involved. I wanted to say, listen, I'm married to this crazy woman. Please have pity on me, but I got it handled. I'll take care of it. She's the one that started all this. She's the one that's driving me crazy. Exactly. She's the one that's like keeps keeping it going and she's keeping me up. So when I think about how I reacted and what you you know, what the potential was for how I would have reacted and the fact that you made that call anyway. I mean, I I can't think of anything that is a greater sign of bravery, anything that you've done in in our lives. And, and so I just, again, I just want to, if you're a person who has gone through this and you you're with somebody like me and you've you've crossed that line and reached out like that, you know, don't, you're going to get gaslit for one thing. You're going to get told, why did you bring people in? This is a marriage. Do you not understand what marriage is? Marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a woman and his parents. I mean, I can conjure up some of the things I would have said, or I did say, I'm sure, you know, the, the hideous things that you have. Not that marriage is only between a man and a woman, but in our situation, I'm just saying that's is, what I would. But have that's said. why you would have said that's not that what it was we believe you now. I believe any. Yeah, but I'm just saying, or any relationship, have the opportunity yeah, for happiness, absolutely. So yeah, you would have just said we're in a bonded relationship. We don't bring other people into it. Nobody, we don't need help. We'll figure it out ourselves. Yeah, and that's why I guess I reached out because I'm like, we're not figuring it out ourselves. Yeah, well, that was just an incredibly brave thing. Other brave things that you did along the lines during my active addiction, you you did talk to your mom and your sister. Now, probably, I want to hear what your thoughts are on this. Probably, uh, that's slightly lower risk only because I. it's not like, I mean, I, I have a reasonably good relationship with your mom and your sister, but I don't call them on a Saturday morning and just, hey, just wanted to call and chat. Like, you know, I only talk to them when I see them. Basically, so I don't think you... And they were very, very, very much on your side. They weren't people that I could sway and say, you're crazy and and believe me. That never would have happened. So I think you trusted that they believed in you and you knew that I wasn't talking to them very much anyway. Is that yeah. why talking to your mom and sister was a little less risky for yeah, you? Yeah, and they've been there and they didn't have all the answers, but, but they were people that knew what I was going through. Sure. Whereas talking to your parents was like talking to aliens because they had no idea what I was going through and what I was putting up with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I felt like I had a lot less pity when I talked to them and a lot more love. Talk to who? Like my family. When I would talk to my mom or my sister, I don't feel like they were necessarily pitying me. Yep. Um, I also knew that it was low risk because at your parents' house, like, there is such that, like, worshipping of alcohol in your family. And that it was celebratory. And so we would go to see them at their house. And it would be a week of you not being, you know, having to work. So your alcohol intake increased. And it was not your cash that was buying it. So you were just loving it. You was like open bar. Any kind of beer you wanted. They would go to the store whenever you wanted. So... <laughs> You know, they were kind of your alcohol cash cow. Whereas if I said, you know, we're at my parents' house and, oh, and my mom's like, oh, Matt, the new rule is no alcohol in my house. Like, you know, because she didn't have it. Mm -hmm. She didn't serve it. She didn't offer it. Mm -hmm. So, like, I felt like talking to them was low risk because if she decides that she was pissed at you enough because of the way you'd been acting before we showed up at her house for our you know, annual trip to go see my family, she could say that. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't argue with it. Because, you know, well, you'd be mad. I don't mad. even want to think about what I would have done. I mean... It would not have been good. But, like, your parents wouldn't want to because the, you, they... It wouldn't be family week. It wouldn't be a party without the alcohol. Yeah. So it's lower risk to talk talk to your mom and sister for very good reasons. But then the other really super brave thing you did, and it it was in response to what I would probably say is the worst experience of our lives, my life anyway. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And it's something, you know, as much as we talk openly on this podcast and as much as we write openly about real stuff that has really happened, this is one that we haven't shared yet. And we're not. I'm not going to sit here and share it right now, I'll tell you that. But it was a really, 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 really bad experience, alcohol-induced awfulness on my part. And you had to go to our church to pick up one of our kids from a little a church program. And as good as you had gotten at holding it all together out in public, even in the midst of, you know, hell at home, uh, this was too awful for you to hide on your face and with your emotions, how bad things were. And so I don't think you talked in any level of detail with the associate pastor that you ran into at our church or that, that was running the program at our church, but she could tell something was very wrong. And, and you, uh, what did, what did you say? What did you say to her? I just said that it was, uh, a bad night of drinking and arguing between you and I. I never mentioned, like, that it happened all the time or anything like that. I, you know, I, uh... You did say drinking? Yeah. Hmm. I just said that, you know, it was just a, a, a drunken argument that happened all, all night. And I said the sad thing is I feel like I just want to, like, not go back home. But I had to go home because our youngest was too young to attend the function at the church. And I think I said to her, if if our youngest wasn't there, I don't know if I could go home right now. Yeah. 
Did you get any kind of comfort or support? Yeah. What'd she um, say? Well, she told me that that was not completely shocking to her because of her ex-husband's situation. And she hopes that I get an apology. Uh, because she never got apologies from nights like that. Without going into too much detail. That kind of unspoken. Yeah. And she just said something like along the lines. Like, and, and don't raise a hand. Because I don't want to see you get in trouble. Because of Colorado law. Because she also, you know, had to know some of that with her pastoral care and some of her um, mandatory reporting. So, basically she was like, I know how mad you get. You know, I know that you could get really mad, but just don't don't slap him. Because then you would be the one in trouble. And I wouldn't want to see that for the kids. And you. But she shared... That she had had similar experiences. I think that's so important, such an important aspect of this conversation. For people out there who think alcoholism is a rare disease or who think high-functioning alcoholism, is it really Is it really a thing? Is it really that bad? Is what I'm going through normal? They're everywhere. Cases like this are absolutely everywhere. I, You know, I see there's a statistic... National Institutes of Health, I think, published that there are 15 million alcoholics or people with alcohol use disorder. That's that's so woefully underreported. And I mean, it's a guess anyway. I mean, how do you survey that, right? But when we do talk about this with people, everyone, I mean, everyone I've ever talked to about alcoholism has a story of their own. It's not always their marriage. Sometimes it's their uncle or their father or their grandfather or their grandmother or mother or whatever. But it's everywhere. And so I pushed you to the point where you took a huge risk, but you you didn't have a choice because it was written all over your face anyway. You couldn't hide it. And you cracked open the door just a tiny bit and the person on the other side of the door had the same story you had. And so at least... That bravery was rewarded with a little bit of consolation and support. A little bit. All that really you guys were in a position to to give each other in that moment. Yeah. I was a member of that church too and she was my pastor too. And she was running a children's program and you were picking up from that children's program. It's not like you had scheduled a meeting with her for pastoral care like you said. It was just a quick interaction. And it was incredibly brave of you to have that quick interaction. Bravery looks different in different situations. And I think that's the overriding kind of message that we're trying to deliver. And I want to make a social media comparison. You know, we we all are acknowledging nowadays that comparing yourself to the things that you see on social media is really dangerous. It's particularly impacting the mental health of teenagers and young adults these days because I actually heard um, on a, a comedy podcast 
not not a mental health podcast, but a couple of comedians talking recently, and they were saying, you know, you used to go to school and you'd compare yourself to the popular kids or the pretty kids at school. Now you can compare yourself to every pretty person in the whole world. Try being a teenager. Think how easy it is to get down on yourself and be hard on yourself and and have some serious depression problems because thanks to social media, there's no limit to how many people you can compare yourself to. So that's not kind of directly relevant for this topic other than you can listen to podcasts, you can listen to our podcast and you can hear these signs of strength and you can compare yourself to that and you can say, gosh, I'm not talking like that with my spouse. I'm not, I don't, I don't have a small circle of friends that I can confide in honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm shackled. I have nobody, I can't let this secret out at all. What's wrong with me? That would be easy to do. And I just want to drive that message home that all these situations are different. And if you're in a situation where you just can't let it out, at least keep listening to this podcast and gain support from knowing (laughs) that you're not alone. My first support as an alcoholic trying to find sobriety and recovery was reading memoir and reading, um, you know, from reading the stories of Caroline Knapp and Sarah Heppola and Augustin Burroughs and all these people who had survived alcoholism and they didn't know me, but I felt like they were my best friend because I could relate to their stories so closely and I knew that there were people that had made it out the other side and it gave me hope. And so at least if you're in one of those situations like Sherry, you were in for all those years when I was actively drinking and there was just no way for you to get support, at least keep listening and know that um, even if you can't tell your story yet, we know you're out there. We know you're out there. We know you're out there. And, you know, sometimes, often really, survival is bravery. So when you hear the stories of somebody else and they sound really brave, just know that you too are brave. If you do have a situation where you're confiding in just a few friends, it's important to figure out how to handle what you're going to hear from your friends. We are in a society where there aren't very many good listeners. And what I mean by that, to me, a good listener is someone who can hear your burdens, can hear your story, can hear your pain, and help you carry it a little bit. And that's kind of it. A listener is not a problem solver. And what we have is a culture where people think, if somebody shares their troubles with me, i got to solve their problem for them. And part of the reason we do that is because we probably love the person who is sharing their troubles with us. And part of the reason is we're all so busy, we don't need anything added to our to-do list. So let me just give you my quick advice, and I'll send you on your way, and I'll feel satisfied that I, I fixed your life for you and everything will be good. So for instance, if you do... If you are in a situation where you've got a small circle of friends that you can confide in and you're hearing things like, oh, he sounds awful, just divorce him. You know, take that with a grain of salt, in my humble opinion. There are so many factors to work in. You talked about some of them, the financial factors, the legal factors, the fact that your lives are intertwined, the fact that your husband might chase you four states over and track you down and continue the conversation that you left in the middle of 
All of these factors are huge. They're huge. They're huge considerations. So if you've got one of these friends that's like, oh, you know, you just need to divorce that guy. What's wrong with you? Why are you still with him? That that person's not a particularly good listener, and um, you're not a you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there that get advice like that. We hear it all the time, don't we? Yep. Or the flip side of that, if 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 you confide in people and you, you hear, oh, you just need to show him more love, you just need to try harder. What what can you do to ease his burden so that he won't want to drink? You just need to give him quickies whenever he wants it. I mean, this is real advice that comes out of real people's yeah. mouths. Um, that's not particularly helpful. So ignore that. Try to find the people who know how to listen. Because they're out there. They're just a little bit rare. You know, maybe the first step... I hate to use the word step. Maybe the first uh, key, the first move to make... If you are the spouse of an alcoholic and you're trying to work on your own recovery, is just acknowledging how brave you are for, for surviving. I mean, it's such a bleak place, survival, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got this tyrant coming down on you. The alcohol is not going away. You're worried about the impact it's having on the kids. Your, self, your own self-esteem is being challenged on a daily basis. Yeah, you're being gaslit and told you're wrong. So the idea of thinking of yourself as a brave person when you're in that situation, I mean, I've never been there, but I can't imagine it's anything less than impossible. So, you know, if you're in the bottom of the pit, and Sherry and I have been there, if you're in the bottom of the pit and, you know, you're looking for just a glimmer of hope, just know how brave you are for continuing to take breaths in and out of your lungs and waking up every morning and putting on your big person pants and doing the work of survival because it is a big hefty job and god i'm getting choked up thinking about it you are you are brave and certainly in my eyes uh, and i know yours too sherry just for surviving so thankful we got out of that so thankful you were so brave um made the moves you made risked what you risked and suffered the consequences you did to get our family to the place we are now. I love you. Thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.